0: We're talking NFL draft, we're talking the Bucks and the NBA playoffs, the Brewers keep winning. What's going on with officiating in professional sports? We finish things up with a moment with Giannis, and I understand Alex Best is listening, it's the 414 Sports Podcast. Let's go! Oh! But instead, it's the 414 Sports Podcast, and it starts right now. Welcome in once again, this is the 414 Sports Podcast. I'm Don Wachillis, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Whether you've done so on Google, Spotify, Apple, or any of the other five platforms that we currently reside on, glad to have you with us. As we said in the intro, we're going to be talking about the NFL Draft, specifically the effects of the draft on the Green Bay Packers. We'll get into some NBA playoffs, looking at the Bucs as they get a split coming out of Boston. The Brewers now, we flipped the calendar, we're into May. They continue their winning ways, and after an impressive offensive performance last night against the Cincinnati Reds, as we put this podcast together, we'll take a look at how the calendar plays out through the month of May and where they stand, and then before we get to a moment with Giannis to wrap things up today, I want to talk about the officiating in Major League Baseball and the NBA because it seems to be at a bit of a crossroads with the amount of technology everyone has access to. And so we'll get to all of that as we begin to make our way throughout today's episode. Before we get into the NFL draft, i got to give a shout-out to Alex, who I understand has become a regular listener. And I want to also give a shout-out to Otis, who's been a regular listener, who says that, We need to have a debate over some hot takes that I had a couple of episodes ago, and I have a feeling that will take place after Golf League, and looking forward to that as well. And thank you to you two guys and to everybody else who, again, tunes in to our podcast. So let's get to the NFL draft that took place last week, Thursday, so we're a week into it. Everybody's had a chance to digest and process what took place, Trayvon Walker. The defensive lineman, the edge defender from Georgia, 6'5", 272, gets the accolades of being the number one, number one pick, shall we say, from or for the Jacksonville Jaguars. So congratulations to him. Aiden Hutchinson goes number two to the Lions. So you get a couple of defenders that go right away off the board. I think many were surprised the fact that Daryl Stingley Jr., the cornerback from LSU, went third. To the Texans, if Derek Stingley Jr. can stay healthy with those ankle and foot injuries that he had in the latter part of his collegiate career, that's going to be an unbelievable pickup for the Texans, who obviously are in the process of rebuilding. But for the Green Bay Packers, the Packers go on the defensive side of the ball. Now, it's been 20 years since the Packers drafted a wide receiver in the first round. Hello, Javon Walker. So they go defense once again, and they pick up Quay Walker, an inside linebacker out of Georgia, with the number 22 pick. And then at number 28, they pick up defensive tackle Devontae Wyatt, also from Georgia. Again, Georgia defenders, a common theme throughout the first round of the draft, and of course then the national media goes bonkers, right? There's poor Aaron Rodgers again who's getting no help. There is no help for Aaron Rodgers. Well, there's a couple of things to keep in mind when we're talking about wide receivers and we're talking about the Green Bay Packers. First of all, picking in the 20s once again, which is something the Green Bay Packers have been used to because they win, and so your draft status isn't always great. And then you look at the upper part of the first round, really that mid-round starting about number 8 and making its way to number 16, and we saw all of those receivers that we hoped the Packers might get their hands on being taken off the board. It started with Atlanta who took Drake London, the wide receiver, out of USC, and then we had a run of three wide receivers right in a row in the fact that the Jets took Garrett Wilson from Ohio State the Saints were able to get Chris Olave from Ohio State, Jamison Williams from Alabama, one that many thought might slide into the 20s and get taken by the Green Bay Packers, gets picked up at number 12 by the Detroit Lions. And then Jahan Dotson, another name that was being bantered about for the Green Bay Packers to coincide and, and run the wide-out spot with Aaron Rodgers. Jahan Dotson goes to the Washington Commanders at number 16. So all of the first round caliber type wide receivers are now off the board. And I know many people were wondering, considering the number of trades that took place, both as far as moving uh, draft pick wise within the first round and also the trades that took place with some various wide receivers, some veteran wide receivers um, on draft day, many thought maybe the Packers should have been in the mix. And so my argument to that would be, how do you know they weren't? How do you know they weren't in the mix? How do you know they weren't trying to do what many people were hoping they would? We have this NFL fantasy draft mentality when it comes to general managers, which is you sit down with your friend at the bar, you say, I'll trade A for B, I'll throw in a beer and a plate of nachos, and your buddy's like, you're throwing in the nachos? Good, deal set. It's not that easy when it comes to the NFL. Also, you've got to take personalities in play. I am quite sure that if general managers were honest and came out and there was some huge expose in the athletic about how general managers operate within the NFL, there are certain general managers who clash from a personality perspective. And just because you want to call well, I don't know, the Tennessee Titans and inquire about a receiver, that doesn't mean that general manager is going to A, pick up the phone, or B, even consider making a trade with you, depending on a number of different factors that come into play. So the Packers go defensive in getting the two players that I had mentioned. And first we talk about Quay Walker, the inside linebacker out of Georgia, 6'4", 241. It's exactly what the Packers need. Now, a little bit later, I want to talk about somebody who I thought the Packers should have gotten it a little bit later in the draft, uh, a certain linebacker out of Wisconsin, but that will come shortly. All right, so Quay Walker, he's going to be one of those defenders that A, can stop the run, but B, he can play that edge-rushing position as well. And that will be really, really something important when the Packers look at somebody opposite of Devondre Campbell. And so that mix there is not bad at all. So Quay coming to the defensive side of the ball should help the Packers. Also, Devontae Wyatt, 6'3", 304. How many times have we said we need a run stopper? Hello, Devontae Wyatt. When you're 6'3", 304, that's exactly what you're going to be doing. You're going to be plugging up the middle. And if you can plug up the middle, that's when your linebackers can run a little bit freer. I always hearken back years ago when Brian Urlacher started his career and was just a beast with the Chicago Bears. And then they had some line movement, and suddenly Brian Urlacher wasn't Brian Urlacher. And people were wondering, had he lost a step? Can he still play the game? Can he do this and can he do that? Well, Brian Urlacher, early on in his career, was free to roam that second level without much contact because the horses up front were tying up the offensive linemen and not allowing them to get to that second level, which made Brian Urlacher a star. Then if you look, once they made some moves again at the defensive line, suddenly Brian Urlacher had a resurgence in his career towards the latter stages of his tenure with the Chicago Bears. So you put in a Devontae Wyatt, and then you think about what a Quay Walker could do, what a Devondre Campbell could do with those guys being tied up up front. So it was a solid move by the Green Bay Packers. Was it what essentially they wanted in getting a receiver right away? No, but then they go to the second round, and they pick up Christian Watson. Christian Watson, one of those receivers being heavily touted, by the media and the scouts and you name it, whoever you read, whether it's the Athletic or ESPN, whatever the case may be, the kid out of North Dakota State, 64208, great speed. Now, he's got some issues with his pass route tree that are going to need to be developed once he gets to Green Bay. And so... The knock now is, again, well, now you've got a receiver who's got potential, who's going to need to be developed, and you've got Aaron Rodgers right now. Even if the Packers would have been able to get some of those receivers that we talked about in the first round, if they were able to get Drake London, if they were able to get Chris Olave or Jamison Williams, do you really think Aaron Rodgers was going to be comfortable in throwing them the ball. And the reason I say that is this. Aaron Rodgers has shown that he is not one who likes to throw to rookies. He just isn't. He hasn't developed that chemistry, and more importantly, he hasn't developed the trust yet to throw to them. So to pick up who you did in that second round, a developmental prospect out of North Dakota State, Christian Watson, is not a bad play at all. So you got a receiver. You got one of those receivers that people were talking about. It just so happened it came in the second round and not the first. So the Packer brass has their work cut out for them in trying to find another veteran receiver that can fit in the system and have the type of impact that this offense is going to need. I think one thing you can take away from this draft is the fact that the Packers, by beefing up their defense, they're preparing for the day Aaron Rodgers walks out the door. Aaron Rodgers, though, signing that three-year deal, which I guess I didn't realize until last week, is that it's three consecutive one-year deals. So either the Packers or Aaron Rodgers, even after next year, can decide, yeah, okay, we're done. It's time to move on. And if it is time to move on, then you've got somebody like Jordan Love who's going to have to step in. And right now, I don't think there are many within the Packer organization over there on Lombardi Avenue who thinks Jordan Love is ready, like they thought Aaron Rodgers was ready towards the tail end of Brett Favre's career. So if you don't think your quarterback is quite there yet, you're not sure whether or not he's got the skill set to develop the way you had hoped, then you better have a strong defense to help keep you in games. And that was the takeaway I got from this draft, is that the Packers are looking to the future, even though they need to look now because of the latter stages of Aaron Rodgers' career, which I completely understand, but they're looking also at the future, knowing that when Jordan Love steps in, there are going to be a ton of bumps in the road in hopes that he develops into the quarterback that they hope. And if he's going to have those bumps in the road, we better make sure our defense is sound. And if our defense is sound, at least it keeps us in games and gives somebody like Jordan Love an opportunity. Now, the one player that I said I wished the Packers would have taken and he got scooped up by the Kansas City Chiefs in the third round is Leo Chanel, the linebacker out of Wisconsin. I don't know what it is with the Packers, and this almost repellent that they spray around Lombardi Avenue when it comes to Wisconsin Badger athletes. There have been some talented athletes that have been on the board that have come out of Wisconsin that the Packers haven't taken that have gone on to have some illustrious careers, hashtag T.J. Watt, a couple of years ago. I just thought Leo Chanel would have been one of those players who could have sat in the middle and helped with the plugging of the running games that are becoming a little bit more prevalent in the NFL. And I thought it would have just been an outstanding pick. When you see Leo Chanel now on social media, when he's being interviewed by the Kansas city press, it's all about, I just love to hit. I just love to be in the middle. I just love to knock somebody on their can. That mentality I think would have fit perfectly Within the Packer organization and the fact that he's a Wisconsin guy, think of what the fan base would have done. So it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on Leo Chanel, the inside linebacker out of Wisconsin with his career now with the Kansas City Chiefs. So everyone now after the draft thinks their team is Super Bowl caliber, right? Everybody talking about the Jets won the draft. Well, good for the Jets. The Jets won the draft, and they did draft very well. There's no knocking it. The Jets drafted very well, and it started with Ahmad Gardner, the cornerback out of Cincinnati, that they took with the fourth-round pick, and then, as I mentioned before, getting Garrett Wilson at the wide receiver spot within that first round. The Jets drafted very well. Now – We'll see if the Jets can develop those players. And that's the one thing the Packers have done exceedingly well over the years is taken players and developed them. Now, we've had players that have left and have gone on to have good careers, but they were developed by this Packer organization. And then, obviously, you talk about contracts and all the other factors that can come into things as to why a player would leave, but the Packers have shown a propensity to develop. So, Christian Watson, that wide receiver taken in the second round, a receiver that the Packer organization, I failed to mention before, moved up, traded up to get him. Watch what happens to him in a couple of years. I don't know if he'll be around when Aaron Rodgers is still throwing the football in green and gold, but I think Christian Watson, if history stands pat, will have a really, really good career. And so, again, we've got a ton of teams right now that believe that they are ready to roll after the draft. It's what makes the NFL great. We've talked about this before. Seemingly, every month they throw something at us, whether it's the draft, whether it's the unveiling of the schedule, whether then it's mini camp or training camp, and then preseason, and boom, we're right back to the start of football come fall. The NFL has the ability to market itself at a level that I think other professional athletic organizations wish they could do, and the fact that there is such a finite time in which football can be played from September, well, now the Super Bowl goes to February, the fact that those games each and every week matter, unlike basketball where you're playing 72, unlike baseball where you've got 162, each and every game matters. It's what makes the NFL special. And so as we close out talking football, let's let's throw in the USFL here briefly for a moment. I told you, listen to me, now I'm preaching. I said, let's look at what happens to their TV ratings come week four and five. Well, after week one, which drew a very respectable rating, it fell 53%. And then as of week three, They're still hovering right around a million viewers for certain games, which is great. But the USFL has its work cut out for him. We keep hearing about the fact that we want football in the spring, and we keep getting leagues like the USFL and the XFL trying life out in the spring, and they struggle. One of the things the USFL is going to have to figure out is getting these teams to play in their locale, to play for their city at home. And I get why they did it this year, a fledgling league trying to start, trying to make sure that they survive year number one, which a lot of leagues haven't been able to do, so they're playing all their games in Birmingham, Alabama. And Birmingham, Alabama, the fans are showing up Birmingham Alabama but they're not necessarily showing up for everyone else so when you're watching USFL games now you're seeing a lot of tight shots a lot of shots really just focused on the field and not what has always been the fanfare surrounding the football game whether it's NFL or collegiate football that's one area the USFL is going to have to figure out but I have a feeling the USFL their focus was let's get through this first year and see what happens so the viewership is still okay. It's not great, but it's okay. And they're really surviving now with baseball intact, with the NBA playoffs going. Uh, The USFL actually had a decent rating considering the NFL draft was taking place, but that's after week three. Now we're heading into week four and week five. That's where we'll keep an eye on those viewership ratings because those viewership ratings are going to dictate whether or not this league survives no matter how much money Fox decides to pump into it. All right, so that wraps up the football portion of the podcast this morning. Let's talk some NBA basketball as the Bucks get ready to play game three. That'll take place on Saturday, now back at the Surf Forum after getting a split in Boston. So we'll talk about that and some of the other NBA playoff games in just a moment. All right, let's talk about the NBA playoffs and sum up what these series stand at at the time of us putting this podcast together before we get into the Milwaukee Bucks and their series against the Celtics. First up, it's the Mavericks and the Suns. Right now the Suns have a 2-0 lead, and right now Phoenix, Phoenix just has too much firepower. I mean, Dallas has played hard. They've played well. The Phoenix Suns have been too good all season long to look past what they have the capability of doing once these playoff series advance. And if, in my mind, things hold the way I anticipate they will, if we see Phoenix and Golden State in the Western Conference Finals, that becomes must-see TV. I think those teams have the opportunity or may have the opportunity to battle one another in order to get to an NBA championship series. And that there, for me, would be must-see basketball at the professional level. Right now, Golden State is tied with their series with the Memphis Grizzlies, 1-1. Memphis getting game two, 106-101. John Morant has been everything right now for the Grizzlies. And the Grizzlies came out a little bit chippy against the Warriors, GP got a fractured elbow off of a flagrant foul um, that was put on him by Memphis. And Memphis, I think, was intending on coming out and trying to be a little bit more boisterous, uh, a little bit more physical after losing game one at home. But in doing so, it went a little bit overboard. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Warriors react once they get home. But, again, that series tied at one. The other series on the eastern side, other than the Bucs, is the 76ers and the Heat. The Heat now have a 2-0 lead, 119-103 win uh, in their second game at home. They've been absolutely dominant. Um, Tyler Hero, let's give a shout-out to Tyler Hero, the Whitnell product. Uh, here in the 414, getting the six-man-of-the-year award. And the Miami Heat just, again, have a little bit too much for the 76ers. The 76ers, many thought, would be a a viable contender for an NBA championship this season. But the 76ers, in doing what they do, seemingly get to this point And whether it's injuries or poor play or you name it, whether it's team chemistry, it seems to go by the wayside. And we talked about this on previous podcasts, this idea that they traded Ben Simmons for James Harden. And once again, the reason why you have to be careful with this idea of everybody having a hot take is the fact that everybody thought, well, suddenly now with James Harden, you will find that the 76ers have found that missing piece that will put them over the edge. Many thought Ben Simmons would be that piece that could help the Nets. Now we've got a defender. He'll take some of the pressure off of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And what you ended up with and what you have right now from both of those individuals is a bit of a hot mess. So with Joel Embiid out because of the fractured orbital, My goodness, talk about taking a shot to the face. But because he's out, it just seems like the 76ers are are on their way out as well. And James Harden has been anything less than spectacular in these playoffs. James Harden has become, I hate to say a shell of himself because he still had 20, but he's not that scorer that he once was. James Harden not only could shoot, but he could get you off the dribble. James Harden can't get you off the dribble anymore, so he's forced to take jumpers, which he can still hit. But defensively, you can do things to alter that, and you've seen his shooting percentage drop because defenders know how to play it because they're not necessarily worried about being burned off that dribble, and James Harden numbers have plummeted. And then we look at the nets, and Ben Simmons never even got on the floor. Ben Simmons is just collecting a check. And so when that trade happened, I, I, go back. Go go look at um, First Things First and Get Up and all of these other shows on the national network and just sit back and listen. You'll find them on YouTube. Just sit back and listen to all the hyperbole, all the hot takes about what that trade was going to do. and It's not doing a thing. It is not doing a thing. James Harden has been with how many teams now? And he's never been that piece to get a team over the hump. He's never been that piece to get a team into a national championship and into winning a national championship. Ben Simmons is completely just falling apart. Ben Simmons was one of those kids coming out of LSU that I couldn't wait to watch once he got to the NBA. I, the upside for Ben Simmons was huge, and the upside could still be there. It's not there right now. And so I don't know what the 76ers do because James Harden's up for an extension. I don't know what the Nets do with Ben Simmons, but better those two teams to deal with it than the Milwaukee Bucks. So the Milwaukee Bucks will play again on Saturday. They'll be at home at Fiserv Forum taking on the Boston Celtics. The Bucs came out swinging, so to speak, in game one. I think the way Boston kind of rolled through the nets in that opening series, they weren't anticipating the physicality that the Bucs had in game one, and the Bucs just steamrolled and got a victory on the road. And then the Celtics, recognizing what they needed to change as far as physicality goes and as far as shooting goes, did exactly that in game two and found their way back into the mix to tie things up at one they got the victory the other night 109 to 86 they had a dominating victory over Milwaukee now Drew Holiday didn't shoot well 7 for 20 Giannis didn't shoot well 11 for 27 not only did they not shoot well Boston found a way defensively to take everyone else out of the mix and we've seen others since the Chris Middleton injury really step in and fill the void as far as shooting goes what we didn't see was that take place on tuesday night which was game 2 boston just dominated boston did what they did against the nets against the milwaukee bucks and why is it that the bucks seemingly every series have or has, one game where they get just knocked around like they've never played this team before. And I'm hoping that was game two. Remember it happened in game two against the Chicago Bulls. They got kind of an ugly win in game one. They got punched in the mouth, so to speak, in game two, and it kind of then... Seemingly woke everybody up and they took their game to another level and then got the gentleman sweep against the Bulls. I don't think you're getting a gentleman sweep against Boston, but what I would hope is a much better performance at home in game three. This series could definitely and easily go seven. I'd rather say six. I'd rather say bucks and six against Boston and then possibly get ready for the Miami Heat, who look like they're about to roll right over the 76ers. But this thing could definitely go seven. So we're going to have some ups and downs throughout this series. This is not going to be the same type of series that we saw against the Bulls. And the Celtics now, I think, understand it's not the same type of series that they had against the New Jersey Nets. I still call them New Jersey Nets, the Brooklyn Nets. But both of these teams now have really taken and thrown a punch that has caused the other to take a standing A count. And Game 3 then suddenly becomes pivotal. So we'll wait and see what happens as these things continue to uh, push their way forward. And we hope that the Bucks then will survive and we'll talk about Game 3 a little bit later in the week obviously on a later episode so with that let's move into baseball as the Milwaukee Brewers continue and man they had an offensive output last night against the Cincinnati Reds winning 18 to 4 so let's talk some Major League Baseball on the other side of this timeout (laughs) One of the hottest teams in Major League Baseball resides right here in Milwaukee as the Brewers now have won 12 out of their last 16. And last night, just an epic performance. Again, last night being the time of us putting this podcast together, just an absolute drubbing of the Cincinnati Reds and the talk of the town as we put this podcast together is Rowdy Telez. Rowdy Telez setting a franchise record in last night's 18-4 win in which he recorded eight RBIs, got a grand slam, and honestly missed a second grand slam late in the game as it hit off the top of the wall another foot higher, and he's got two grand slams. Once again, he has just been an absolute fan favorite. Rowdy Telez is one of those guys, he's built like he's playing the Monday Night Softball League for your local tavern, and I think that's what has a lot of people, especially in our fair city, loving him. But he's got a tremendous amount of power with that stature that he possesses, and he put all of it on display last night, as we said, getting those eight RBIs and the two home runs and honestly, again, missing that second grand slam by inches, just it's put the Brewers in a spot, I think, where many people thought they would be, and that is playing good baseball and taking care of life in the NL Central. The Brewers should have no problem if we forecast things forward and the pitching staff stays relatively healthy. The Brewers should have no problem whatsoever taking care of teams as they have with the Reds, who are just atrocious. When you think back to the 70s, at least you know in my childhood, what the Red Machine was all about, with Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and everything else in the mix, how good that franchise was, how good that franchise was in different parts over the last few decades— To see that team now, what are they, like 3-21? and They're they're just awful. That's a bad baseball team. And the Brewers, again, that's one of those teams they'll dispose of easily. The Pirates are a little more formidable, but not necessarily great. The Cubs, the Cubs are kind of falling back into being those lovable losers that they had been for many, many, many years. And the only other team that might provide a bit of, of friction in trying to ascend to the top spot is the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals always seemingly play good baseball in the latter half of the season. So the Cardinals might struggle now in the month of May, June and maybe July. But if they stay right around 500, the Cardinals are the team you really have to watch for in August and September because they always seem to be one of those teams that make a late season run. The Cardinals to me are the Michigan State Spartans of college basketball. You know, Michigan State can struggle throughout the better part of the Big Ten season, but watch out for Michigan State once you hit February. It's like there's another switch. The Cardinals, to me, are like that in baseball. There's just another switch when it comes to that particular ball club as they make their way into what could be a potential postseason run. So the Brewers now, as we make our way into May as we are a couple of days into it on Cinco de Mayo today as we're putting this episode together. After an afternoon affair today, they'll go to Atlanta to take on the Braves. Then it's back over to Cincinnati. Then it's down to Florida to take on the Marlins before back home against the Braves once again. The Braves will be, again, a formidable opponent. Last year's World Series champs. We'll see how they do in that set. But then you can get healthy again against the Braves and you can get healthy again against the Marlins. So a team that has struggled offensively, that being the Brewers, having a game like last night you root for because hopefully some of the guys get their confidence back up and the bats get woken up and it matches what the pitching staff is giving you and you can continue to roll now through the month of May. So the Brewers, again, taking on the Reds a businessman affair, a twelve forty start, first pitch this afternoon against Cincinnati before heading on the road against the Braves. Before we get to a moment of Giannis, we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, I want to talk about officiating, especially as it pertains to the NBA and Major League Baseball. Some things have been going on that have been highlighted with the technology that we have today, and it's exposing some things that – Both Major League Baseball and the NBA in this particular circumstance, they're going to have to correct essentially quickly, and we'll talk about it in just a sec. All right, let's talk about the officials, the umpires, the referees, as we see it in Major League Baseball and the NBA. Before we get to that, let's start with something positive. There was something that went viral yesterday, again, May 4th, um, of an incident that took place in Toronto as the Yankees were playing the Blue Jays, and there was a young guy sitting out in right field that uh, is an Aaron Judge fan. He's a big Yankee fan living in Toronto. And there were a couple of guys that were sitting in front that I guess were yelling into the bullpen. They were trying to get this young guy a ball. You know, he's got his Yankees hat on. He's got his Judge uh, – it's a shirt, but, you know, it represents more of a jersey look than necessarily a shirt. And then, lo and behold, Aaron Judge hits a home run, and the guy in front of this kid catches it. And immediately just turns around and hands it to him, and we see the kid break down in tears and hug him. And it was just one of those feel-good stories, one of those stories that helps make baseball what baseball is. And then yesterday, Aaron Judge brings the young man down and gets a chance to meet him, and they talk for a moment, you know, and the kid is just thrilled. It's one of those things that we would love to see more in sport because that's, I guess, from a fan perspective, especially with kids – that's what you love to see because for these kids these guys are larger than life they're their heroes and the ability then to meet what social media could be right the the positive things that social media could do here's a young fan that got caught on camera that you know emotionally kind of lost it because he got a ball from a home run, off of his favorite player. And shout out to the guy, though, who I I don't know what his name is. Shout out to him for turning around and giving that kid the ball. I mean, we're focused in on the kid, which is great. It's a great storyline. It's a great marketing tool right now for the New York Yankees. But a shout out to the dude who handed the kid the ball. Credit to you for just being a stand-up guy and not sitting there and going, no, I'm going to hold on to this and auction it on eBay or whatever it is. I want to do with it to just do the right thing. So it was just one of those feel good stories. And I needed a feel good story before I went in to the umpiring situation and the refereeing situation in Major League Baseball and the NBA. Now, we've seen time and time again this year about some of the bad calls. And speaking of Aaron Judge, Aaron Judge. <laughs> got rung up a couple of times in his game the following night against the Blue Jays on some on some just bad pitches. Low and away, low and inside, and low, period. He's a big dude. And you can tell when a pitch is low on a big guy like that. So much so that the manager for the Yankees got rung up and thrown out because, obviously, nowadays you argue balls and strikes, you immediately get run. And he was defending Aaron Judge. The pitch call the strike call, I should say, was just horrific. And that comes on the heel of Madison Baumgartner getting ejected in the first inning in the Diamondbacks game on Wednesday evening, which would be last night. So as he's coming off the mound, now we know pitchers have to be checked for substance. And when you watched how the game went, so as the Marlins pitcher, pitcher excuse me, comes off the mound, the Opposite umpire runs over, takes a look, boom, done. Baumgartner comes off the mound, and umpire Dan Bellino, it's creepy to watch because, of course, now we've put it in slow motion. I've heard this morning on one of the news programs, they put it to Barbara Streisand's memories. It's creepy to watch. He's like massaging his hand and just staring into his eyes. And it seemingly takes forever. Now, it seemingly takes forever because they put it into slow motion. But even in real time, that took longer than it needed to. It was an instance of this particular umpire, and I haven't found yet why, had an issue with Baumgartner. He was looking for a reason. He was trying to provoke Baumgartner to do what Baumgartner ended up doing, which was lose his mind and get thrown out of the game. And that's just another instance when you put it with the balls and strikes of which umpires right now are being scrutinized at a level I don't know they've had because of the amount of technology that's in play. Baseball has got to figure out a way to maintain its historical perspective. Old-timers love baseball, right? Old-timers want to preserve the history of baseball. I understand it, but technology has shown it can enhance the game. So baseball, which it has not done well, has got to figure out a way to get to the forefront of this and start melding technology with the traditional aspects of the game of baseball. Because if you don't, you are going to find yourself having larger issues than what you have right now. The whole ball and strike thing, you know, somebody posted something from a playoff game. I think it was in the 90s. This idea of balls and strikes being called out of the zone is nothing new. It's been going on forever. The problem, again, is we have technology today that highlights it at a greater rate than what we did 10, 20, 30 years ago. Baseball has always been late to the party when it comes to technology. They're going to have to figure this out. Then on the other side of things, watching the NBA playoffs. Somebody wa- – listen, I'm, I'm starting to just become a huge Ja Morant fan because Ja can play the game like nobody else. But watch Ja come down to court. He carries and takes steps every time. We talked about this in the opening series with the 76ers where Harden literally took six steps between dribbles. Six steps between dribbles, no call. John Morant hasn't gotten six steps in, but the other night I counted four. And I've seen not only that, but I've seen in all of the playoff series players taking the ball out of bounds who are clearly over the baseline. I mean, these are fundamental aspects of the game. I'm not trying to be the old guy who yells to people to get off their lawn, but there are fundamental aspects of the game that need to be enforced. And if you're not going to enforce them, then all we're going to get, if we're talking basketball, it'll just evolve into street ball. And then if it's going to be street ball, then why have refs? Let let it be like an all-star game. Just have somebody throw the ball up, get out of the way, and let the guys do what they do. There's a reason why referees are on the floor. There's a reason why there's a rule book. There's a reason why you have one-on-one situations or two-shot fouls or whatever the case may be. You have to call the game at a higher level than what is being done now. I understand once you get to the playoffs, referees do not want to be the storyline, and yet they are being the storyline because they're not doing their job. You have to do your job. Now, I get it. You want to swallow your whistle with 30 seconds left and let the guys play because you don't want to send somebody to the free throw line on a cheap foul, which could alter the outcome of said contest. But what about the three-plus quarters prior to that? It just seems like right now, again, because technology is so enhanced That it's exposing some of these things at a much greater rate than what they had been exposed of in the past. And so the guys wearing stripes, the girls wearing stripes, the guys and girls wearing umpire uniforms, they're going to have to figure something out. They're going to have to figure out, A, how to step their game up, and B... The, the respective leagues are going to have to figure out how to incorporate technology at a greater rate, a better rate, or whatever rate it is I'm trying to think of right now in order to make this all work. And when I say incorporate technology basketball, I don't mean go to the scorer's table and take five minutes to watch replays. That's ruining the flow of the game. And that's an example where you're trying to get something right, and it's actually ruining the flow of the game because it's taking so long. Technology exists. Incorporating it is not always easy, but you better figure out a way because right now what's being done through officiating needs a whole lot of help. All right, let me get off my soapbox. Let's wrap things up on a positive note, as we always love to do here on the 414 Sports Podcast. We'll wrap things up with a moment with Giannis, and before we get to that, thank you as always, for logging in and joining us on the 414 Sports Podcast. I'm Don Wachillas. I'm going to get out of here. It's I'm a moment with Giannis I mean, I as we wrap things up. Like I, like, I love feeling beat up after games. I don't know why. You know, my family think I'm a, I'm a weirdo. But, uh, like, when the game, you know, finishes, I just kind of look at my body. If I don't feel like I'm, like, beat up or, like, you know i was physical enough or they were physical to me i feel like i didn't give everything for my team so obviously everybody feels a little bit beat up our team their team but at the end of the day, it's the playoffs you gotta you know get ready mentally and physically for game two and you can never take that for granted you gotta come out and uh